Welcome to The Other Coast, a podcast dedicated to the Malfa meta in Los Angeles. My name is Jeff, and with me here are two other players in the SoCal area, Jim and Colgan. Hey guys. Hey everyone. Hey, and uh, Jim, welcome back. Colgan and I missed you uh, last time without your restraining influence, so we recorded like a 90-minute episode or something. So, <laughs> please help keep us on task. Oh, uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, we... Um, we're going to make it actually pretty challenging for you this time because our topic today is uh, damage. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, we really we really drilled down and, and found a, a highly focused topic. So to start us off, uh, Jim, why don't you explain what damage is as a concept in the game? So, yeah, damage. Easiest way to think of damage is most of us are familiar with chess, right? You can take an enemy model, an enemy piece off the board by claiming it. That ba- that model in Malifaux terms would have one hit point and the model attacking it or just the model that's take taking it off the pe- off the board. So at its core damage is the mechanism by which you can interact with your opponent and remove their pieces from the board. Got it. So now Colgan, you know, we've mentioned a couple times on the channel that Malfo is not about killing stuff, it's about scoring victory points and winning the game and we've in fact even emphasized that it's possible uh, although I would imagine quite difficult to win the game with no remaining models. So is does that mean damage is kind of a, a secondary concept? You know, how important is damage? I mean, you know, we do say that you can win without fighting a lot, but, you know, it's going to depend on your strategy and schemes. I think it's going to be pretty hard to, like, beat someone in public enemies if you're not attacking their models at all or forcing them to drop any of those tokens. So while there are definitely like alternative ways of playing and you could probably run into one of those fighter strategies and still win without killing any of your enemy's models, like it's definitely making the game a bit harder for you. I I think the main thing to keep in mind is that, you know, damaging or removing models is always going to be an option, but it's not necessarily the best option for what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So like what I'll see with a lot of new players, you know, they're coming from other war games. They just want to pile in the middle scrum and like try and kill as many people as they can. So they're spending like, you know, two to three turns just trying to wipe out like the models. I just like sat in the middle to kind of like pull aggro while I'm going on the side scoring all the points that I need to score. And by the end of the game, it's like, OK, sure, you killed like half my guys, but you don't have anything to show for it. Right. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is. You know, look at the scoring mechanics and how you earn victory points in those other games. In Magic the Gathering, the entire point is to drop your enemy's hit points to zero by damage. In War Machine and Hordes, you automatically win regardless of scenario if you take out the enemy caster. In Warhammer, it's gotten better, but even in in Warhammer, if your opponent has no models on the table, you win the game by default. Right. So damage in those games is like the default win condition. So it makes sense to play those games and tailor those games to doing damage. In Malifaux, the fact of the matter is that is not your default win condition. Mm -hmm. So I think when we say that you can win Malifaux without throwing a single attack, that's because it's not the default win condition. But I agree with Colgan 100%. You are going to make it so much harder on yourself if you don't incorporate some amount of attacks into your gameplay. Right. Another thing to think about is attacks are opposed to duels, which inherently means you're interacting with your opponent. The most interaction in the rules, at least as far as the rulebook is concerned, 
comes during these opposed duels and these attack actions. So in a sense, it's a lot more fun if you're able to trade some blows with your opponent, because then you're both doing things, and it's not just moving pieces on the board against each other. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I just want to also put it out there, like, even though we do say it's like, you can win without attacking your opponent, like, that's still more or less going to be like the default thing that happens in the game. Like you're going to be killing your opponent's pieces. You're going to be fighting them. It's not like whenever the three of us play, we're at this like higher tier of like ascendancy where we're just like, we don't need to even interact with the other person. And it's like, Mm -hmm. we just read out the game to its finish without ever getting into scrums or fighting like that. It's just to keep the idea that I I think in Malifaux, it's all about being able to evaluate your options and understand what is going to be the most or i guess like the best action to take at any given time Mm -hmm. and it's just like telling new players that you don't always want to think about attacking or removing your opponent's pieces because sometimes again like that can actually work against what you're trying to accomplish depending on the strategy and the schemes you've selected right you know i think it's worth pointing out because and you know i could be mistaken but a lot of times it seems like there's this perception that if you uh, if you're playing a you know one of the more combative crews that you're somehow playing Malifaux at a lesser level than if you're playing you know one of the crews that re- relies on on um, like scheming or you know summoning or has somewhat convoluted mechanics uh, and I don't think that that's that's true at all I think you know even though it is possible to win. A game of Malifaux with you know crews that have a lower damage potential these conflict centered crews these crews that want to be you know fighting and doing damage they're not necessarily any easier to play or to win with uh, than than any other yeah I think that's something a lot of people tell themselves to make themselves feel better when they get their asses kicked <laughs> like I, I think if you're gonna be like oh I only lost because my crew is harder to play it's like okay well you suck at playing them too so it's like <laughs> Uh, it, it, it just sounds it always sounds like an excuse to me it's like mm-hmm. okay you lost like these are both valid crews to play just because one is fightier and you weren't able to effectively counteract them doesn't make you still somehow the better player in this right now for our listeners who you know stuck with us thus far please go back to the previous episodes where colgan talks about uh how he's such a hero for coming up in the game with nelly <laughs> <laughs> I never said that. You said that about me. I just did not deny it. That sounds like fake news to me. (laughs) Bringing us back to uh, what we're talking about here, which is damage. There's a couple of ways in Malifaux that you do damage. You know, we talked about attack actions, but there's also these pulse damage sources and shock waves. So there's a variety of ways to apply that damage to your enemy. And the way I like to put it, as, as Colgan mentioned, is this the right play for me? It's, it's, a, it's a tool in your toolbox for scoring points. If you have the option to take an attack or an interact, the question I ask myself is, does this score me points? Or if it doesn't, does this deny me points? I need to ask myself that one more often because I will, I have more often than I care to admit, been like firmly sitting on seven victory points and then run my dude off the marker that he needs to sit on to protect it or go kill something and then go oh wait i i just denied myself two points because i wanted to kill something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it seems to me that damage you know damaging attacks serve a couple different purposes right i mean it is possible for there to be 
ways to score victory points through damaging or killing models. You know, some of the schemes, mm-hmm. some of the strategies, they are they are based on that kind of interaction. And then, of course, if you can remove an enemy model, you can prevent the enemy from using it to score. But a really important concept, which you know I think we should at least touch on, is that when you remove a model, uh, it helps you acquire what people sometimes refer to as as activation control. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Colgan, I guess for our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with the concept or haven't really thought about it, how would you explain, you know, activation control? Yeah, we touched on it a little bit on our on our episode about resources, but activation control is just basically being able to control, well, how I see it is you can kind of control pressure where action is taking place on the board. So if you have activation control, you can like have it so you're taking the last action in a turn or you're able to take actions that the opponent isn't able to immediately respond to. Mm-hmm. And if you have like more models, you can kind of control it so maybe you take the last activation in turn and you kind of drop that last scheme marker where the opponent could have easily removed it if they still had like one or two models left to go. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of ways to kind of create activation pressure you know, one of the easiest ways is, you know, just removing the opponent's models, but even just like wounding them or getting them really low on health. Now the opponent has to be like, well, if I don't activate this guy, there's a good chance he's going to die before he can do anything. So he might activate him to get those last few actions out, even though it's not, you know, like a very useful activation for them, but it's better than nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So uh, I guess now we should maybe uh, dig into some specifics, right? So Uh, When you talk about damage, I think, you know, kind of like Jim mentioned earlier, there are direct damaging attacks. This is an attack where uh, one model maybe shoots another, uses a melee attack against another, and it does, you know, it's damage principally only to that target, right? It's it's just a a, a direct infliction of damage. And then there are indirect damage sources, and these these can be, um, you know, shockwaves, which are kind of like these area effect generally. You know, you might think of them as like a grenade or, you know, a fireball or something like that. Um, There's also some effects in the game... That, uh, you know, maybe, for instance, Leviticus's aura, if you activate near him, you take damage. You know, I tend to think of them as, as more indirect, even though it is, you know, damage from one model to another. It, it's not coming from a direct attack. Mm-hmm. So when we evaluate these direct attacks, you know, one of the most important components is the the damage track. And, and it'll generally be three numbers three numbers something like two three four and and you know for those of you maybe who aren't super familiar with the way Malifa works if you flip a weak card for damage you do the first a moderate is a second and the severe you get to do the the third number on the slash which is almost always the the highest value so you, you know Jim now that we've kind of explained a uh, damage checks you know I assume there's there's a variation in damage checks because there do seem to be a lot of variation in Malifo generally so how do you evaluate uh, a damage track uh well that's the that's the beauty of the game so the damage track damage profiles when you look at them at first it seems like okay a th- maybe you think a third of the time i'll do weak a third of the time i'll do moderate a third of the time i'll do severe and that's just not true because the damage tracks themselves you can look at them in a vacuum but i think it's best to look at them with the concept of the accuracy modifier before talking about the actual numbers. Right. And and so the accuracy modifier you derive that from the the range of success, right? How much mm-hmm. uh, the attacker has has won the the duel against the defender. Correct. And that's a a mechanic unique to Malifo. Other games just have binary you hit, you cause the damage. And if it's not saved, it causes the damage. 
for for Malifaux, when you hit, it's how well do you hit? There are, there is a number of conditions and abilities that provide positive and negative twists to this flip, but at at its fundamental source, you have to beat your opponent in an opposed duel by between six and ten to have no native modifier to the attack flip. Most people, when you look at the stats, have defensive values and offensive values in the four to six range. Many models will have, you know, between four and six defense or willpower and then a four or six on their attack stat. What this means is that it's really unlikely for you to be beating someone by more than six on a given attack. Mm -hmm. So that means you're often going to have a beat them by one to five, which puts you into this negative damage flip territory and all, all other things being, you know, not taking any other bonuses into consideration right now. If you're flipping on a negative, core rules of Malifaux says you can't cheat the damage flip. So if you're flipping two cards, picking the lowest, and you look at how many cards that are weak are in a 52-card deck, are moderate in a 52-card deck, or severe in a 52-card deck, someone's done the numbers somewhere, but there's quick mental math, about 20 weak cards, 20 moderate cards, and 16 face cards before you add jokers in. So odds are, when you're doing an attack, you're probably going to hit that weak damage more often than not. So you're likely going to do what's called minimum damage, which is that weak uh, slot. So when you first look at an attack, I look at what the minimum damage is. Because I expect my model, all things considered, to be doing minimum damage with an attack. Right. So then, Colgan, that's that's like this min, min 2, min 3 concept that you know we might see people talk about on the forums or a weird place, right? Oh yeah, that's a pretty common shorthand. Just the minimum damage track on a model. So you say min 2 or min 3. And that's why a lot of people consider like the baseline for some of your more aggressive or beater models to be min 3 because then you have a reliable source of damage. Mm -hmm. Right. And now, I actually, I do recall that we had talked about this uh, previously, but since it, you know, it, it's pertinent to the subject and it's not going to take too long, why don't we go over it again? You know, so does this mean that uh, if you're taking a, a model to be a beater to do a damage dealer, you would only ever take a model that were, you know, min three? Yeah, I mean, of course it's going to depend. There's a lot of things that will make a card good for, I guess, being like an assassin and trying to move enemy pieces like they might have some abilities that make it more reliable and their damage track for the moderate and severe might be good enough that you also want to use them to try and move models another common damage track is like two four five which is which is you know still respectable and if you're able to make sure that you're consistently getting like straight flips on the damage so you have a good chance at hitting those moderate severes then they can definitely be used as one of your main fighters or your main beater in your crew. Um, I mean, all this is all going to depend on the keyword you're taking, what kind of defensive tech the opponent has, because there's some models, you know, they'll have like a two, three, four damage track, which is normally considered really low. But if they have an, the ability to ignore defensive tech like armored or shielded, then they might be worth taking against certain masters. Right. So, you know, I guess what I'm hearing is that 
you know, you can't just look at the damage track to really get a sense of what the model's minimum damage is going to be because it's it's a much more holistic process. It, you know, what can your model do? What can your opponent's model do? Um, but it is important to understand what your model's reliable min damage is because that's going to provide the baseline for calculating how many activations it'll take one model or one damage track to kill a specific enemy model, right? Right. Or, you know, if you're if you're banking on those moderate and severe damage tracks, you want to make sure that you're actually setting up for the attack for that one model, you know, making sure you have the cards in your hand to actually cheat in that high damage or have some way to ensure that you're going to be able to get like straight or plus flips when you're flipping for damage. Right. Sure. So, I mean, that makes sense. So I, let's move on from minimum damage then and let's talk about spike damage. You know, let's talk about, you know, attacks that have a, a really high uh, moderate and severe and you know sort of the, the two four five like you mentioned or three four six you know are, are these spike damage things are they are they just due to luck like oh geez i i i flipped really well and you flipped badly now i now i can do a ton of damage um or is, is there a more deliberate process for pulling these off i think there's a bit of a deliberate process there because a lot of the models with these spiky damage tracks I actually do this uh, mental calculation in shorthand, and I think it's helpful. When you look at an attack, if you do two attacks at a minimum, is that equal to or better than one attack at severe? Because if you're trying to get, if this is a game of activations and every action you take with your models is precious, then you want to get the best bang for your buck, right? Mm-hmm. So. If I have, say, a, let's say I have a Bayou Bushwhacker. They have a trusty rifle, which is a 14-inch weapon with a 2-3-5 damage track. So if I shoot twice and I hit and get that negative damage twist, I'm going to do 2 plus 2 damage in the best of worlds and do uh, for minimum and do 4 damage. If I hit once at severe, I'm doing more than 2 attacks with minimum. And this is where we talk about the condition known as focus. And focus is, I think, one of the most powerful conditions in third edition as it is right now. Because as of the time of the recording, focused provides a positive twist to attack flips and a positive twist to damage flips on ensuing a hit. Why this is relevant is that if you hit somebody by one to five, your accuracy modifier is that negative twist that we talked about just a, just a few moments ago. Now, if you use that attack with focus, A, you're more likely to beat somebody by one to five because you're flipping two cards to their one. And B, if you hit and you beat them by one to five, suddenly you're bumped back to a straight damage flip. And now you can go ahead and take that severe card in hand and boom, do five damage. Right, right. And you know, focus as a mechanic, I frequently see it being used to... Uh get around defensive tech right so someone might focus in um if their target has say manipulative which would normally give a minus on the attack you know they focus to cancel that and and so it might seem that the primary use for this focus is to uh make you know make the attack land but then actually if the focus also pushes your negative flip on damage into a straight flip that then provides you the cheating capability that you mentioned. And, you know, as someone who plays Colette, you know, I, I have these five-stone showgirls who have manipulative, and, and that's their defense tech, right? And so uh, when people focus against them and then they hit them, uh, they only have five health. So a mm-hmm. 
you know, a severe five is, is not an uncommon, an uncommon amount on, on models. Uh, and so manipulative in, it almost feels like it works against the model, you know, having it because it's almost like, well, it forced the attacker into a, into a situation that is now just going to lead to the model getting removed. So is it even good, good defense that anyways, that's how I feel like when I, when I get the model removed, but uh, so Colgan, when would you really be looking to do these sort of spiky hits that Jim's talking about? You know, as Jim mentioned, if you're going to be using this focus, it's going to take, you know, an extra action to set up that attack. So if you're ever looking, or if I'm ever looking for these spiky damage tracks, it's when I think it'll allow me to get a kill on a model. And I'm going to be engineering the rest of my turn, kind of making that as likely as possible. So when I go into that attack, I want to make sure that I can ensure that I hit and that I still have a card left over for the damage if needed. Of course, if I go into it and I'm able just to flip everything I need, that's great for me. But focusing and then either missing or getting the hit and flipping a weak and not being able to cheat it to any better doesn't feel great. You know, like even when you have these spiky damage tracks, like, okay, yeah, sure, two minimum damage hits isn't as good as a severe, but if you have no way of ensuring that severe hit, then I feel like it's better just to go for the volume of attacks because you can burn cards out of your opponent's deck or maybe force them to cheat into something out of their hand without you having to expend resources right right mm-hmm. well and some attacks also get you know some of their damage through triggers right if for instance if a model has a critical strike trigger that might be a model that is better off taking multiple attacks like always like i always say it's it's really going to depend but when i first started playing and after i lived through or did not live through a few focus attacks i was like i should just focus for for every attack like why wouldn't i but then after playing more it's like it it is a lot of resources to throw into something Mm -hmm. and if you aren't able to kind of like make sure you're getting something back out of it your model just did nothing for that entire turn they focused and then they whiffed right Mm -hmm. yeah and on that note there's something really important in what you just said which is it costs you resources it's a riskier but has a higher potential payoff to take focused attacks on something than it is to do the volume of attacks. Because you have, you you know, most people have a six card hand. If you're dedicating one severe in your hand to the damage and probably dedicating another severe to ensure that hit goes, a third of your hand is dedicated, an entire activation usually, of your model is dedicated to trying to remove an enemy model. If that whiffs, yeah, you are definitely down in the activation game. Sure. The other thing to keep in mind in this mental calculus we're talking about is the actual like attack stat that you're working with. Malifaux is a game where there's small number differences make a big deal. Most models have a defensive stat, either defense or willpower, in that 4 to 6 range. More often than not, um, 5 to 6, and an attack stat in a 5 to 6. Whenever you're making an attack with a stat that is equal to or greater than the model you're attacking, you can reliably ensure a hit. Malifaux, the attacker wins ties. So if I'm attack 5 and you're defense 5, if I cheat a 10, you have to cheat an 11 to beat me. So I'm trading a moderate in my hand for a severe out of your hand for you to dodge the hit. Right. That gives me better card advantage. But if I am spending an attack 5 stat against your stat 6 model, like say I'm using a that 14-inch trusty rifle against someone with defense 6, 
suddenly, not only do I have to be one card higher, one value higher on you with my card just to beat you, I can't ensure that that attack goes through. You could theoretically have that one card to just deny me. And suddenly, yeah, I might be getting a severe out of your hand, but you have negated an entire model's activation. When it comes down to making your attack, I think I value an attack stat of six on my beaters more than necessarily the damage track. Because if I can consistently put the damage on something, that's still getting me return on my investment of actions. I could see that. Yeah, uh, I, I just wanted to chime in on that. Like, as I've been playing more, I've been, like, putting a lot more value on the stat as well. And for me, one of the big reasons is if you have a higher attack stat, like if you have six to the opponent's, like, defense of five, it also increases the chance that the opponent has to cheat first. So you're not, not in any danger of losing a card cheating in when the opponent has a higher card to beat you out. So, like, say maybe the highest card you have is, like, a 10, um, you win the flip and then they cheat in a 13. If you had cheated, if you lost the flip and you had to cheat in first, then you're just losing out that card and then you're basically reducing your accuracy for the rest of the turn and it makes any attack actions later in the turn a lot riskier because you no longer have that higher card to cheat in to possibly win those duels. That's a really good point. Yeah, and it, it what it sounds like, and, and this is a pretty common refrain on the other coast, but it really sounds like both, both of you, Jim and Colgan, you're really evaluating these actions, you know, in, in terms of resources, right? And and resource expenditure, especially, you know, you're talking about, you know, cheating for cheating for damage or or cheating. And, and, and then if, if your opponent has to cheat and you can you can cheat in a better card to win, they've just had to expend a resource for for no value. So I, I guess what I'm asking is it, you know, is is this kind of efficiency your primary concern when you're evaluating these attack actions um yeah uh for me it's definitely something that's always that i'm always thinking about you know i was saying earlier you know malif was all about options and trying to take like the best path towards scoring as many points as possible so if i'm making an attack i already have an idea of like what i'm expecting out of it you know there's like some weaker minions they'll have like ranged attack actions which may be like one two or three damage but I still like having those because, you know, sometimes when I'm moving up the board, if I don't want to overcommit, I can just kind of throw it, throw it out and just like start, you know, softening up an enemy without actually having to fully commit myself to one part of the board or a certain course of action before like the rest of the models have already deployed. Like conversely, if I'm going in for a kill, I want to make sure that I have those cards in hand so that I'm not just basically putting my guy out there and just leaving him out to dry because I'm not able to do any damage. I'm not able to remove a model. And then he's like completely exposed mm -hmm. and by himself. Rip Paul Crockett. Uh, but <laughs> actually, you know, I wanted to uh, uh, say something here, Colgan. You have been playing a little bit of Hamlin lately. And one of the things I find the most frustrating are your totems and their stat for attack. Because while a great, you know, a stat six is a good attack for making sure a hit happens. If I'm defending against a stat 4 and you hit me, it feels really bad to have to choose whether or not to cheat against a stat 4 attack because then it feels almost like I'm being I have to spend a card on an attack that shouldn't have hit in the first place. 
Right, that's another thing. Um, uh, the the totems are stat five on their barf attack, and their well, wait, vomiting disease is the <laughs> stat five against willpower, and then their flail is a stat three on the attack. But th that's another thing to consider too. It's like what I love about Hamlin, the totems, like they have a one three four damage track, but like it puts the opponent at pause because okay, yeah, sure, I'm unlikely to get that one damage, but if I get in that three damage, it's it's like the equivalent of a beater model. And for me, I have three of these guys, and like if they hit it's like a bonus to me right <laughs> like i the, you know i get three of them for free like their attack's pretty decent but it's just like extra pressure on the opponent because like do i really want to cheat in against this like little two point totem that's just walking around like it can't really score me points so their primary function for me is to either like jam up the enemy or like once i start stacking blight i'm fairly convincingly put out like a threat of three or four damage from one of these like little walking barf bags that I have on the table. And it's just great because like, it's kind of, it feels like a no win situation for my opponent. Right. Um, so how do you guys kind of evaluate, uh, and you know, in before it depends, <laughs> uh, how do you guys kind of evaluate, uh, you know, these models that maybe Hinomatsu is a good example, you know, her, her damage profile isn't really that impressive, you know, she's min two, but she's got this, this onslaught trigger to, to get more attacks. Uh, how, how do you evaluate that against, you know, maybe someone like Eliza Borgman, who's, who's got this huge great sword when, you know, if you're, when you're looking to hire, uh, are there particular matchups where multiple attacks are, are preferable to a big swing or, you know, vice versa, or like are there particular situations where you want one over the other? Um, or is it basically just, eh, you know, they got what they got? I think generally I'm in favor of having more attacks. Because while, yes, I made this whole deal about the fact that you're probably going to do min damage, the more attacks you take, the more likely you are to be pleasantly surprised with those moderate or severe results. Also, one of the things that Hinamatsu has going for her, and Elijah may not, is... Actually, remind me, I don't have the app up. Is Hinamatsu nimble? Um, let me check. I don't think so. Because one of the things that's important with a beater in particular is how many times can they swing that sword? She's not nimble, but she has okay. flurry, which is what <laughs> and, makes and, really and scary. That, yeah, <laughs> she got flurry and onslaught, and her attack has a built-in plus right. flip. So right. So yeah, like for I guess like in Hinamatsu in this case, yeah, the reliability of the action is part of what makes it really scary. Right. So, you know, so for instance, I mean, let's say you're playing Hinomatsu and let's say that you, you know, you've really tagged someone, uh, you've hit them by, by six or more. Uh, so you're going to, you know, you're getting that, that straight flip for damage. Um, but it's not a mask. It won't give you the onslaught trigger. Uh, will you cheat in a mask that will, that will dip you into a negative flip for damage in order to get that additional attack? You know, when would you maybe consider doing that and when would it be a good idea to keep the straight flip. So here's the big brain moment. I would have stoned for a mask before I swung. But <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, uh, the answer to that question is, am I going to kill the target? So if I'm on a straight flip, I guess what I'm saying is, does the model have hard to kill? Because if I have a solid hit that I know is going to cause damage, that's a known value, and I can control for that and do, you know, force a moderate or severe damage result. But if it's something that has a, you know, a hard-to-wound result or a demise trigger where extra damage is lost, like I think uh, in MMOs you have this concept of like overhealing and overdamage where you can, if you think of enemy wound totals as like a, a 
a zero to x value, if you do x plus three and you do x plus zero, you still kill the target. But if it costs you more resources to do x plus three, those are wasted. Mm-hmm. So if I know I have hit and I can kill the target, I'm not going to bother cheating for that onslaught. But if I've hit and I know that I'm going to drop it to hard to kill, yeah, I'll cheat for that onslaught because I need that onslaught to kill the target. What about you, Colgan? Yeah, more or less the same thing. I think you can kind of, I mean, you can just kind of evaluate with how we've been saying it earlier. It's like, how, what do you get the most value out of? If you're like, oh, I can get this onslaught trigger, but if you just like cheated in that moderate for damage, you could kill the guy. It's like, why are you going to <laughs> cheat it in for the onslaught attack? So it's really kind of about evaluating like what is this going to accomplish if I cheated in? Is it worth it? And like, how high is that card? If it's not going to put me really far ahead, if I'm not going to kill the guy, you know, there might be cases where I don't even cheat on that card because for me, it's just nice to have those cards in hand to cheat in later. And like, well, I already hit, I already flipped a high card out of my deck. So, you know, it, it seems to me that I should just kind of roll with it and do the damage if it's not, if I wasn't already playing to kill the guy. Or uh, it, it depends on so many factors. Like, yeah, if I don't think I'm going to kill the guy, then I probably won't cheat it, and I'll just leave it in for later. Well, so, I, you know, for those of you who are playing the, the Other Coast drinking game at home, you should be feeling pretty tipsy at, at this point, uh, and we got plenty more It Depends uh, coming up. But let's um, round out our discussion on damage tracks and kind of talk briefly about uh, cheating damage. And, I mean, I know we touched on this maybe in a couple other sections, but let's just, you know, really kind of put a cap on it. Uh, when would you guys look to cheat uh, your damage flip? When I can. <laughs> uh, mostly because it happens so rarely, and if I have the opportunity to put more damage in, and, you know, kidding aside, I think it's only really worthwhile to cheat damage if you have the opportunity to, and the difference in damage that you're cheating is significant. Let's say I'm playing the Wastrel keyword, and I have Sadir, and he is taking a shot with that 2-3-6 damage track gun. If I can cheat a Severe in, I'll put a Severe in, because that'll do 6 damage to something and probably kill it. Or at least drop it really low and make it more likely to die. But if I only have a moderate in hand, the difference between a 2 and a 3 is just not worth it to me to spend a card out of hand that I could probably use to dodge an attack or make another attack hit later in the turn. Yeah, so I actually, I more or less agree with Jim. Like, you know, it sounds simplistic, but I'll cheat in damage whenever I can. But the, the thing is, normally when I'm cheating in damage, it's something that I've already planned to do at the beginning of the turn. If it happens that, you know, it's like, oh, I could cheat in damage against this attack that I wasn't really worried about, you know, like I was mentioning before, if I have like my little scheme runners or my like low cost minions just throwing out ranged attacks, like I won't necessarily cheat in the damage, even if it would take it from like a two to like a four, because if it's not something that I'm really worried about hitting, or I might already have that key, that card earmarked for another action later in the turn. So when I'm cheating in damage, like I would say the majority of the time, it's because I already planned to do it at the beginning of the turn. I have this guy in place. I need to remove this model. And I'm dedicating a lot of resources to making sure that model dies. All right. So uh, I guess let's just finish off this discussion of cheating by talking about the Red Joker. Other than when you're doing uh, demo games with Greg, 
uh, when would you look to cheat in the the red Joker as as damage? That was against Matt. Oh, was it against Matt? I'm I'm sorry. I I sure you it didn't happen multiple times because I feel like it was against Greg too. But so uh, you know at any rate you know the red Joker when you cheat it in it's gonna do severe plus one damage, uh, and it's it's this really unique capability in the game. But of course. It's also a stat 14 in any suit that you want. So, you know, do you guys evaluate the Red Joker specially in terms of cheating it in for damage? I actually... You know, Colin, you answer first. (laughs) Okay, I I will take this then. Honestly, normally when I have the Red Joker in my hand, I am looking at it to cheat in damage. Because most of the time, for a lot of the triggers I want, it will usually be on Henchmen or Masters, and I can burn a stone to make sure I get it. Or I have other cards in my hand that can kind of fulfill that condition. Obviously, there are going to be some cases where, you know, I don't have the cards in hand. I might not have the stones. Or it might be like an enforcer or a minion that I can't actually burn a soul stone to get the suit in. That I will use the red joker in order to secure a suit and get an action. Um, But the majority of the time, I'm going to be looking to use it for damage. Because I feel like, you know, like having a 14 is great. But most of the time with models that I'm using offensively, their stats usually high enough that a 13 will ensure the hit anyways. So I want to use the red joker and get as much value out of it as possible. And it being able to add an extra damage to a hit, taking like severe from like five to six damage, can definitely put models into a kill range. Right, right. And it sounds like, you know, the red joker in in particular, it, it's effective in cases like uh, Jim mentioned Sadir, right? With a very... A spiky damage track where you get a lot more value out of the the moderate and the severe than you do from the weak. Interesting. Because I'm actually going to go ahead and differ a little bit here just to spice things up. Yes, it is a big deal to get that plus one damage on severe. At the same time, it is only one more damage. And I know that sounds crazy, but if I'm not going to kill something with a severe plus one damage flip, Knowing that I can secure a hit for two or more damage with minimum, that seems to me a little more reliable overall damage. That said, I am not going to complain when I flip the Red Joker on damage flip, and I will absolutely (laughs) cheat it in damage when I have the opportunity and I think it'll get me close enough to kill that target. Sure. But I also uh, know, especially with the way 3rd edition is now, and we'll touch on this in another episode, there's a lot of models out there who can mitigate or undo damage if you give them the opportunity to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and nothing feels worse than taking a focus shot cheating the red joker for damage on somebody have them live on like one or two wounds and then be like i have serena bowman activate and heal me for six because she is fair and balanced (laughs) <laughs> right right well so it sounds like we've uh you know when it comes to damage tracks we've kind of uh min damaged that horse to death so you know why don't we shift now to our, our next topic and we want to talk about you know ping damage right and when we say that we mean you know these, these kind of lower damage you know usually one or two points they, they frequently come either for free like like from an aura such as leviticus or or shockwaves are our common attack action that will deal uh, what people generally consider to be ping damage. Why is ping damage good, or or is it good? I mean, maybe it's just bad. What you know? What do you guys think about ping damage and its role in the game? Um. So for me, the the great thing about most ping damage is that it's reliable, and I, I feel like a lot of the times it's a way to just kind of force pressure the, on the opponent. 
And it's especially great against like armored crews and stuff like that mm -hmm. because normally they're making your attacks less effective, but now you have a passive way of pulsing out damage that more or less doesn't care about any armor that they have on them. So, you know, these are things like you're mentioning earlier with like Leviticus's aura. I think, is it like unmade or something? I forget what it is. And, you know, there's also some masters that will just like create like hazardous terrain markers and you just drop it under the enemy. And now like when they activate, they're taking one damage. And it's like, it can also pulse out pressure if you get someone down to like one HP and it's like, well, if they activate, they just die. So now the opponent just kind of has like a dead mono on the board that they can't really do anything with, or they have to expend a lot of resources trying to get them out or trying to like save them from their inevitable doom. Right, or I mean, they just have to activate and do nothing because that is an option as well. Uh, but at that point, it's pretty much the same as a dead model, right? Um, so now, Jim, I mean, I know you probably have a, a better perspective than either of us on ping damage because um, Wong is one of the masters in your rotation. So uh, how do you you know, kind of see ping damage and its role in the game. I, I mean, Colgan really hit the nail on the head with, uh, it's a great tool against armor. Another Bayou Master, Ophelia, she has the ability when she attacks, her whole shtick is she's like loaded up with guns like a 90s Punisher comic. <laughs> and she can plink them or, you know, she shoots and she can discard the upgrade and do one damage. So in a sense, it makes her damage track plus one. But because it's two separate instances for things like armor that reduce damage per instance, but never below zero, or never below one, excuse me, it's getting damage through the way that would otherwise be absorbed. Shockwaves are a different kettle of fish, and the reason for that is, as, as bad as this sounds, your opponent gets a choice on whether or not they take damage from shockwaves. Aura damage like... Leviticus or like misery from Pandora, it just happens. Mm -hmm. If you meet the qualifications, you have that point of damage. Right. With Wong, he's kind enough to ask you, are you willing to fail this simple duel that you could cheat? Because it's on a straight flip for you. Unless my lovely assistant is nearby, but she's probably going to die if she's nearby you. So more often than not, you're going to be on a straight flip for a simple duel to pass. So the you know, so then are you saying that, you know, Wong's attacks are bad that you can avoid them? Or, you know, is there an upside to your opponent having a, a say in whether it happens or not? So shockwaves are one of those player skill style abilities, I feel. And shockwaves are also abilities that get better in volume. Because if you do a single shockwave test and you hit two models with a shockwave, that's two simple tests that's not a lot of pressure for your opponent to flip a card that they're probably going to be 50-50% passing just off the flip. If your opponent doesn't spread their crew out and you can tag multiple people with your shockwaves, suddenly you're flipping three times, six times in one action. You're going to start failing and then your opponent's going to start cheating cards. And you only have so many cards in hand and as we've been talking, you know, some people like to earmark their cards for specific actions. Where where Wong starts to shine for me is if he can throw, you know, six shockwaves out in a turn, or four to six, depending on what you do with him, you can start to really hit a bunch of dudes, apply a lot of hand pressure because they're starting to fail. And if they have to choose, do I choose to take two damage or do I cheat to pass? 
that's a lot of decision making on your opponent's part. That's a lot of possible hand pressure. And if they are spending their hand doing that, you still have an entire crew of dudes who, because it's Wong, are probably going to be fast because they got shot in the butt by magic, that have reliable melee attacks. Uh, Swine Cursed have a 2-4-5 damage track. Um, the Taxidermist have a 2-3-4 damage track on stat 6 that can reliably hit and do bonus damage with critical strike. So Wong uses Shockwaves as hand pressure and buffing his crew. I know you play Colette, and I know that she does shockwaves to debuff the opponent. You have Rasputina is another model that uses shockwaves with her attacks, and those can put out debuff conditions. I think the strength of shockwaves really is the threat of failure can force your opponent to spend resources more so than it is actually doing damage. I see. And, you know, Colgan, do you kind of see shockwaves in the same way? Yeah, so for me, shockwaves are more about creating pressure on the opponent. The way I always think about it, it's like, okay, sure, there might be like a 50-50 chance, but if I'm forcing like two or three tests and they're flipping like 10s and 11s, those are cards that are no longer in their deck. So if I'm putting out the shockwaves early in the turn, when later I go in and I'm trying to, you know, hit with my models, you know, I'm essentially trading in like a five or a six for the shockwave to go off for like maybe a couple high cards, like 10, 11s and cards like that out of my opponent's deck. So when we go to flip later, the chances of me succeeding on my opposed duels is higher because I still have those cards either in my hand or in my deck, whereas my opponent has burned them to dodge the shockwave attack. Sure, sure. No, I mean, that makes sense. So I guess, you know, what I'm kind of wondering to kind of uh, fold in our discussion about spiky damage earlier, you know, in terms of killing models... You know, these these ping damage effects, do we see crews that just kind of layer so many ping damage effects that, you know, they just kind of melt the other crew down o- over the course of the game? Or are, are these ping attacks kind of most effective in setting up, you know, maybe a big hit because, you know, the opponent has cheated out the cards to avoid the, the shockwaves or, you, you know, the big cards are gone from the deck or whatever. Um, you, you know, so, so how do you guys you know, see these, are they complementary or are they sort of like different modalities for dealing damage on, on, I guess, a crew basis, right? Like maybe, you know, crew A is like the kind of, you know, slow burn crew and and B is hack you to pieces kind of thing. So is, is there that dichotomy or are they, they more, you know, supportive of each other? Huh, that's a good one. I think in our meta, most of the passive damage and like lots of instances of damage are more of the soften people up variety. I don't know anyone in our like in our area that is really playing something that's doing a ton of instances of damage to chop something up right away. Like we don't have a Nakima player who's coming in with hay red and doing minimum six damage to things. Yeah, I, I guess in our meadow we we haven't really seen anyone like just trying to run a crew where they just annihilate you through ping damage. But I always feel like with shockwaves and kind of the aura damage, it's just extra pressure you're applying to your opponent. So maybe you're not necessarily killing things, but them moving into an area where you're able to get all this insured damage off and soften them up and have the threat of killing them kind of, you know, it it creates these areas of control that your opponent doesn't really want to step into. 
So it gives you a lot more freedom with how you operate during the course of the game. It gives you control over certain sections of the board, even if you're not like actively removing models from your opponent. Right. So, you know, what I'm hearing is that one of the virtues of these uh, ping damages, and, and actually, Kogan, I think you said this explicitly, uh, is its reliability in, in the sense that it doesn't take as much for you, the attacker, uh, to produce these effects, right? So uh, generally, we're not talking about opposed duels where your opponent can resist it. Um, you know, if it's a ping damage aura, it's typically something that um, you just have. If it's a shockwave, it's going to be a simple duel. And, and so the fact that you have total control over whether it happens or not, um, or at least a lot more control over whether it happens or not, uh, compared to a, a direct damaging attack, means that you can calculate whether it's going to happen to a higher degree of reliability. And then since, since you know, we're talking about these damage attacks, like, oh, well, how many attacks is it going to take to kill this guy? You know, every variable you can replace with a known factor is going to make your calculations more precise. Uh, and the sense I'm getting is that the more precise your calculations or, you know, the more accurate your calculations are borne out on the table, the more likely you're going to achieve what you're trying to achieve. It, it, you know, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, there's a lot of times, too, with like shockwave attacks, like I'll toss them out just to create that hand pressure. And maybe the opponent doesn't have the cards in the hand and it brings one of the guys low enough that I'm like, oh, I can actually just remove them off the board without actually expending a lot of effort. And I'll go ahead and change my plan because I can now remove this model, you know, just by taking up like one activation or one attack. Whereas before I wouldn't have dedicated those resources because there's so many unknowns following that course of action. The less uncertainty you have is the better, in my opinion. I think that's kind of a non-controversial statement. Like in, in dice-based games, you, you can go with the law of averages to make your predictions, and sometimes you roll hot and sometimes you roll cold. Sometimes you flip hot, sometimes you flip cold. But I think Malifaux does provide a number of tools, both for you and your opponent, to manipulate fate, as it were, in your favor. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So, I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job of of covering damage as a concept. You know, I realize a lot of these, you know, these ideas, they're not profound ones, right? It, it's, it's not like mm -hmm. we're uh, cracking the Da Vinci Code here um, or the mm -hmm. unified, you know, the unified field theory. It's, it's, uh, it's something that probably anyone could work out if they really stop to think about it. But I think a lot of newer players maybe don't appreciate it first the implications of damage right so i you know you might see um someone cheat in damage flips regardless of how much value they're really getting for it or you know frequently i see new players struggle to really assess how valuable it's going to be to have an aura that does one damage to people you, you know uh it, it doesn't seem maybe as dramatic as as a great sword hit for six uh but on the table it it can have just as much impact in in the right situation so I think that's pretty much it for us tonight. If you if you listened and you want to let us know what you think, we would uh, love to hear from you. We play in Los Angeles, but we want to be part of the wider Malifaux discussion. And that's part of why we're doing this podcast. So if you have any feedback, whether you think our show is great, whether you think it's terrible, you know, somewhere in between, whether you think what we said is stupid, whether you agree with us, you know, let us know because we, we would love to hear from other Malifaux players. Uh, and if you'd like to support the channel, you know, you can uh, leave us a like, a comment, a subscribe. All those are, are you know, really appreciated. 
Uh, we also have a Patreon and a PayPal, and the links will be in the show notes. So if you want to support the channel that way, obviously that would be super cool too. Uh, and otherwise, I'm going to say good night. Yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks everyone.